then the rest of you can go ahead and open up your copy of God's life-giving word to the book of Mark. We'll be in chapter 11 this morning, starting in verse 27. And uh, as you turn there, let me just welcome uh, everyone to the gathering of Redemption Hill Church. My name is Tanner Turley. I serve as one of our pastors. So whether you're in the room, worshiping online, wherever you are, uh, we are thankful that you've chosen to come to worship and not just see some people, uh, but have a face-to-face encounter with the God who made everything, including us, and has a purpose and a plan for each one of our lives. Uh, if you are new, we want to give a special welcome to you. So whether, whether you're new here in the room or new online, let's give it up for all of our guests. We're so thankful for you. And uh, we would love for you to download our app. It will give you some great resources as well as give you the opportunity to connect with us. We would love for you to fill out the online connect card that's found on our app uh, so that we can know that you worship with us so that we can extend some love and gratitude uh, for you joining us today. Well, uh, I am excited to continue our follow series in the book of Mark as we uh, turn to Mark chapter 11 and look at this truth of Jesus being our cornerstone. And as I was uh, meditating on this text this week, I actually got a a, a headline on my Apple Watch uh, that said the Millennium Tower uh, in San Francisco is not in a good place. Okay, this tower that was constructed in 2008, since that time has decided to lean 17 inches in a westward direction, I believe. And so this is, this is an issue, as you might imagine, because the settlement rate, all buildings settle, houses settle, skyscrapers settle, but as it is settled into the ground, uh, the foundation is under duress and creating this lean of 17 inches. This has caught the eye of engineers, and so they've devised a plan to try to correct this and and mitigate any future uh, risk to the building and, of course, to the inhabitants of the building and the city of San Francisco. And so they decided that they would reinforce the foundation by drilling down into the earth to hit the bedrock with these supporting piles, they're called. Okay, so they're going to get these piles and they're going to extend them up from the bedrock 200 feet down and then they're going to connect with this concrete slab. I'm no engineer, but just I'm doing my best here. And these these other piles are going to attach to the foundation of the Millennium Tower. But after they started this work in May, fast forward three months later, and while they anticipated that the building would continue to settle at a rate of one inch per year, causing potential further leaning, they hit the one inch mark in three months. And that means that now the building has moved from 17 inch lean to 22 inches. There's a serious problem with that building. And we know this this teaches us the truth that, that you and I already know that buildings need a firm foundation. I mean, if, if I'm a resident of the Millennium Tower, like I am, I am working on my exit plan at this point, right? 
but just like buildings, even more so our lives, need a firm foundation. It's one thing for a, a building to not be structurally sound. It's another thing for a life not to be structurally sound. And Jesus in Mark 11 and 12 tells us that he is the ultimate and only firm foundation for our lives. He is the cornerstone. And so these, these words from Christ today are going to invite us into, are going to call us to say, listen, if Jesus is the cornerstone, then we should build the entirety of our lives on him. That's the, that's the, the takeaway from today. That is the, the point of the message as we look at these stories of Jesus here. If Jesus is the cornerstone, then build your entire life on him. As we move to the end of chapter 11, we see a group of people that were not very interested in making Jesus the cornerstone of their lives. In fact, this group of religious leaders believed that Jesus was a fraud, that he did the great works that he did by the power of Satan, and that he was a threat, a blasphemous false teacher who must be removed. So when we find them asking Jesus questions here in the, the latter part of chapter 11, we need to understand that they are not asking sincere questions. They are asking a question that is seeking to trap Jesus in his words that they might see to his arrest and his, hopefully to them, his death. And this is where we pick up in Mark chapter 11, verse 27. I'll read these words for us. It says, and they, speaking of Jesus and his disciples, came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. We need to see in the sequence of Mark's gospel that we have hit what we now refer to as the holy week of Jesus' life. The week where he, we saw on the previous Friday, uh, 
Sunday rode into Jerusalem on uh, the back of a young donkey's colt and people shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then on Monday, as Pastor John uh, showed us last week, Jesus came into the temple that he had inspected on Sunday night and he started overthrowing the tables and the chairs because the people and the money changers and the religious leaders who permitted and pushed all of these uh, heinous activities were turning God's house of worship and prayer into a place of commerce for their unjust gain. And so now on Tuesday, uh, this begins a series of six consecutive conversations that Jesus has with the religious leaders where they are trying to trap him in his words and he is coming back at them and helping expose who they are so that the people will know uh, who he is and who they are and the truth of God for their lives. And so Jesus, after he comes into the temple like a lightning bolt on Monday. It's no surprise that the religious leaders would be waiting for him on Tuesday. What we find here in verse 27, it says the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. What you need to know is this is the full range of the religious establishment of the people. It was known as the Sanhedrin, the council of the Sanhedrin. They called the, the major shots in the religious scene of Israel, and they were comprised of three groups of people. Think Supreme Court, okay? Like this is like the Supreme Court of the religious establishment. It was made up of, yes, elders, chief priests, and scribes. And so they're waiting for Jesus, and they, they, they want to trap him in his words. And so they ask him, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? In other words, we, we saw or we heard about what you did yesterday coming into our space and disrupting our practices. Who gave you this authority? And they know good and well because they had had previous conversations with Jesus that if he were to answer them truthfully, transparently in that moment, hey, my authority is given by none other than the God of our fathers, Yahweh himself, they would say, you are a blasphemer, you deserve to die. But it's Tuesday and not Friday. So Jesus doesn't answer their question. He answers their question with questions. But before we get to that, we need to come back to this issue of authority. The issue of authority runs all throughout the gospel of Mark. The, 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 the religious leaders are essentially saying, hey, you, you have no right to come in here and mess up our temple practices. We don't care that the Bible said that the temple should be a house of prayer. Listen, that you can pray elsewhere. We're going to make some money while the getting is good. And so they question his authority. But as we've seen throughout the gospel of Mark, if we were to run through these chapters, we would find that Jesus does not ha simply have the authority over what happens in the temple, which is the implicit uh, conclusion of his actions the day before 
But Jesus has authority over sickness, Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. Jesus has authority over demons, Mark chapter 1 and Mark chapter 9. Jesus has authority over nature. Just watch him walk on water, Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. Jesus has authority in his teaching. We've never heard a person, a man, speak like this before. And not only that, Jesus has the authority to ignore the tradition of the religious leaders when they contradict the word of God, Mark chapter 7, verses 5 through 13, so much so that he has the audacity to reinterpret the sacred day and practice of the Sabbath, saying, you need to understand the Sabbath in relation to me because I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And if this doesn't make you lean in, to the authority of Jesus Christ. Let's not forget about the beginning of Mark chapter two when a paralytic is brought through a roof and Jesus not only heals him, authority over sickness, but Jesus forgives him, displaying that he has the very authority of God himself. Jesus has complete authority. Make no mistake about it. And so I don't know about you, but probably the average person, the average pastor preacher would say, hey, you're questioning my authority. Let me give you a little bit of my track record. Do you remember the healings? Do you remember the demons? Uh, did we say the demons? I might skip that. The demons too. Okay. My teaching, that's a bit about the Sabbath. And you saw what I did yesterday. Okay. God sent me. I have the authority. But Jesus, so much wiser than us, he doesn't take the bait. But he answers their question with a question. And the, his question is, is this. He says, hey, let, let me ask you a question. Answer me. And if you answer me, if you just give me an answer, I'll tell you my authority. Seems like a pretty good deal since they wanted to know his authority. But then Jesus goes on and he says this. This was his question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? In other words, did, did John, he was baptizing in the wilderness. He was preaching this message of repentance, that, that the kingdom is coming and, and God's Messiah is on the way. And was that from heaven? In other words, was that from God? Or was that just his own doings? Was he like a false prophet out there in the wilderness? What Jesus is, is doing here is he's saying, you want to play games, I can play games. You want to try to trap me in my words, I'll trap you in your words. Because what Jesus does here is he creates a dilemma that they cannot find their way out of. They, they articulate it in verses 31 through 33. It says, they discuss with one another. If we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe in him? I mean, can you just imagine the scribes and the, the chief priests and the elders, they're all huddled up. They're staring at one another. Some of them are calculating like, what are our options here? What do we say? And, and then probably others who have, you know, a little quicker on their feet have already calculated and there's just fuming smoke coming out of their ears. They know that he has caught them in their words. And so they know that their hands are completely tied. And they say, listen, if, if, if we say 
from heaven, he's going to say, you should have believed in him. If we say from man, then we're in another tough spot because we're trying to get the people to rally behind us against him. But if we say that John's baptism was from man, then everyone's going to be upset with us because everyone believed that John was a true prophet from God. And so they come back to Jesus and they say, Jesus, we don't know. We, we, can we get back with you, Jesus? We're going to have to go study the, the law and kind of think this thing through a little bit more, you know, consult with the other council members about, you know. And Jesus says, okay, me too. No answer from you, no answer from me. But as we peer into the text a little closer, what we find, because we are not starting in chapter 11, we didn't just show up in the temple on Tuesday. We've been reading the entire gospel of Mark. And if you just showed up this Sunday, I'm going to give you a crash course on what Jesus is really doing here. Because think about it. Jesus could have asked a thousand questions here. He didn't have to go to John the Baptist but for Jesus to highlight John the Baptist, who the religious leaders just exposed, hey, everyone believed that he was a prophet from God. And, and let me interpret that. We believe that what John did was legitimate and what John said was true. You see where I'm going here? What did John say about Jesus? There's one coming. I'm not even worthy to get down on my knees and untie his sandals. There's one coming who I baptize you with water and you can understand that because you're just seeing it before your eyes. But guess what? I'm, I'm covering you in water. He's gonna cover you with God himself. The Holy Spirit. John would say in other places, behold, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. He must increase, I must decrease. I am the voice of one crying out here in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare the way for God himself. Jesus is God. That's what John the Baptist said. So Jesus is so, so smooth, not only to not answer their question, but to not answer their question in such a way that he didn't incriminate himself in their eyes, but also to answer their question, I am who I say that I am. Wild. Wild. But then we see Jesus was not done. <laughs> I mean, you know, we talk about mic drop moments. So like, you know, John, John of heaven, man, nope, 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 nope. Drop the mic, I'm out of here. But Jesus actually takes the conversation and he goes on the offensive to the religious leaders. And again, I think we need to understand that, yes, these are words of judgment that we're going to read in this parable that we know as the tenets. But in every invitation, 
In every, in every indictment, there's an invitation. Don't miss that. The reason that, that God exposes our wrong thinking is because he wants us to have right thinking. The reason that he exposes our rejection of him is because he wants us to receive him. And this is what we see in the parable of the talents. Let's read it together. By the way, a parable is a story that communicates a spiritual truth by way of analogy. That's a very, very simple definition of a parable, and I hope it works for you today, okay? So this, this parable, this story, this communicating a spiritual truth by way of analogy, what does Jesus say? It says in chapter 12, verse 1, and he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. Let me just stop right there. Vineyards were very in common in ancient Israel. Everyone would have known what Jesus is talking about when he says vineyard, this, this large uh, collection of vines that's producing grapes, not only because they saw them regularly, but because they had read the Old Testament where God describes his relationship with Israel like that of a vineyard owner, that, that the people of God are the vineyard. We keep going. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. Verse five, and he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son, but those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Then Jesus asks, verse nine, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. In this parable, we have several allegorical features, which is not super typical of most parables. Most parables, sometimes we want to press the details. Let me give you a little uh, 
tip for when you interpret the Bible on your own, okay? A lot of times we want to kind of press the details and find like correlations between everything in the story. That's usually unwise when we interpret parables because again, parables have one main point and we find, this one does too, we find the one main point in verses 10 and 11 where Jesus says, he ties it all together, quoting the Old Testament, which they really loved, which helped them to not be able to refute it and everyone else to understand it. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. But in this story, there are several points of comparison. You could call them allegorical points of, 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 of comparison where uh, just, just I've, I've included them here for you so you can track where we're going through the story, okay? Number one, as I said in the opening words, the vineyard represents God's people. In this case, the, the, the nation of Israel. God had chosen Israel to be his people, that they would be uh, his people and he would be their God and they would be a light to the nations, as Pastor John reminded us last week from the words of Christ. But, but not only that, clearly the man who planted the vineyard, the owner of the vineyard is none other than God himself, God the Father. So I put Father on the slide. This is God the Father, just so you're not confused at all, okay, the owner of the vineyard is God himself. But then we see that the owner of any vineyard is not going to lease out his vineyard and not expect a return on the rental. Most of the time, this would have been roughly 50% of the yield of grapes, whether that was given to him in fruit or given to him in money, okay, they would have expected a return on the yield of the fruit. And so the, the owner sends servants. The servants, as we'll see, represents the prophets that God had sent to the people, the nation of Israel, again and again and again. And the tenants represent the wicked religious leaders. I mean, we see this, that at the end, they, they know, hey, Jesus is talking about us. And then, of course, the son, the one other of verse six is none other than Jesus himself. And so let's press into a couple of facets of this parable that help us understand who God is, who we are, and how we should respond to him today. Number one, we see that while the owner rightfully had claim on the fruit of the vineyard, the tenants of the vineyard are saying, hey, we want to take a little extra this year. In fact, we don't want the owner to have anything at all. So when he sends us a servant, we're going to treat that servant like he doesn't want to be treated. The first one, it says they beat him and sent him away. But then the, the, the mistreatment goes from bad to worse. It says the second servant that was sent, uh, they took him and beat him. The first one, they took him, beat and sent away empty-handed. Then the second in verse four, they struck on the head and treated shamefully. So, so it wasn't just a beating, but they, they amped up their persecution to the point where he walks away shamed by the experience. And then the third, of course, they go all the way and kill him. 
But it's interesting that as Jesus tells the story in verse 5, it says, and so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. Now, I don't know about you, but I can speak for myself. If I were listening to this parable, Jesus saying, hey, there's an owner of a vineyard. He sent a servant. They beat him up. He sent another servant and they beat him up and shamed him. He sent a third servant. They killed him. And then it says that he sent still others who were beaten and still others who were killed. We might say this owner has lost his mind. This owner is acting irrationally. I mean, I'll speak for myself. I'm no, I'm no business owner. I'm one of the pastors of our church, okay? But, you know, like if I owned a business and, and I sent one of my workers on an errand and someone beat him up, okay, I might not even send the second servant, much less, you know, have to, to deal with everything that's, that's happening there. And so we ask ourselves, is, is the owner of the vineyard irrational? Or is he outrageous in his love? We see from the Old Testament that the prophets, one by one, were sent to Israel to proclaim the, the, the news of, of God's kingdom, to call the people back to a true devotion to God. That's what I'm trying to do every single Sunday when I get up here, by the way, that they were calling people to follow God's ways and to know him and to love him and to keep him as the priority of their lives. And yet the people wanted to go their own way. And so prophet after prophet, it says in Hebrews chapter 11, that they mistreated them, they abused them, they imprisoned them, they beat them, they stoned them, they killed some by the sword and others they sawn them in two. I'm sorry if that's a little graphic. That's what the Bible says. That's how they treated the prophets. And yet God kept sending them prophet after prophet after prophet. Why did he do it? Because God is wild. He is absolutely wild. He destroys the conventions of our thinking when it comes to patience and mercy and grace. The love of God is absolutely scandalous. Absolutely scandalous. but it gets more scandalous than just sending prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. Because verse six tells us that the owner of the vineyard says, hey, there's one more. I have a son. And maybe, just maybe, if I send my son, they will respect him. If they're going to listen to anyone, if they, and it was the point. The point is, what was their view of God? How they treated the servants was a reflection of how they were treating the owner of the vineyard. This is why he sends his son. If they're going to respect anyone, it's going to be my son because it will show if they respect me at all. It says that they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, 
Jesus is saying, I am the son sent by my father. He calls him a beloved son. We know from Mark chapter one and Mark chapter nine, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is my son. Listen to him. God loves the world so much that he sends his one and only son to rescue and redeem us. And so to reject the son is to ultimately reject the father and to reject the father is to bring just consequences on ourselves. Here Jesus plainly says, To reject God the Father means you are giving up your leadership position. You won't have it long because you are not leading God's people in God's way. So you're going to be removed from leadership, but that removal actually shows that you, you don't even have a relationship with the Father after all. And to bring this home, he in unmistakable fashion points them to the Old Testament scriptures with this little opener. Check this out. He says, have you not read this scripture? I mean, I mean, for a, for a scribe, listen, what was a scribe? A scribe copied the, the Old Testament. They just, they took a pen and they copied it and they copied Psalm 118, where this came from many, many, many times. If anyone knew what the Old Testament said, it was the scribes, it, were, it was the chief priests, it was the elders, the, 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 the leaders of the people of Israel. And so no doubt these were like, these were fighting words, you know what I'm saying? Like you're insulting, you're saying, have I not read the scripture? I've read the scripture, I've memorized the scriptures. What are you talking about? Have I read the scriptures? I've got them memorized. But what Jesus is saying is this. Of course you've read the scriptures. You haven't understood the scriptures. You've, you've read them. In fact, this one particular psalm, we saw it just a couple of weeks ago. Psalm 118 was one of the songs of the festival. When they came in for Passover, they were singing together as they walked into the city. This is why it was so natural for them when Jesus gets on the back of the donkey and rides into the city that they are screaming out, Hosanna, salvation has come to the kingdom of our father David. That was a quotation right out of Psalm 118. And so now Jesus, here he is again, quoting Psalm 118 and he's saying, the stone that you have rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus is the stone. The builders are the religious leaders who have rejected him. And he is calling out their ignorance and insincerity and pointing them to their coming judgment unless they turn to him. And so as we think about Jesus being the cornerstone, being the firm foundation of our lives, We're not simply talking about an issue of whether our uh, lives are leaning 17 inches or 22 inches, okay? 
listen, apart from Christ and being our cornerstone, our lives are sure, sure to crumble to the ground. To whatever degree we experience that in this life, and we all experience it as we seek to build our lives on things that don't ultimately have Jesus as the greatest priority. But then ultimately Jesus is saying, if you don't build your life on me, you are going to be headed for the same destruction as these religious leaders unless they turn and see me as the very cornerstone of their lives. And so I want to ask you today, as we consider Jesus the cornerstone, are you building your life upon him? How firm is the foundation of your life? When the winds come against you and they are sure to come, is your life standing firm, standing tall because Jesus is your foundation. Let me ask you today, how strong, how strong, how strong is your relationship with God? Are you walking in a close, vibrant relationship where no one has to wonder if you're committed to Jesus? No one has to wonder if you have spiritual strength that is not seen on the, the exterior but flows from the interior. These words of Jesus are telling us this. If Jesus is the cornerstone, we should build our entire lives upon him. And you may say this, like I had a conversation with a friend on Friday who's been weighing whether or not he should make Jesus the cornerstone of his life, or perhaps it's better to say he should recognize Jesus as the cornerstone of his life. He said, well, if I do that, what, is it, what does it look like? It's a great question. And I would answer simply with four words. To quote the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ. To live is Christ. Is, is Jesus the cornerstone of your life? To live is Christ. Th that, that means that Jesus is so comprehensively, completely the priority of my life, the ultimate commitment of my life, that all other commitments fall under my commitment to him. Jesus defines the way that I work. Jesus defines my relationships, my friendships, my family. Jesus influences how I just have a good time on the weekend. What, like everything in our life falls under his ultimate control and my allegiance to him. But then to put this in even more practical terms, which some people describe the process of becoming more like Jesus, the theological word for it is sanctification. It means we're being increasingly set apart to not live like the old way we used to live, but to live like Jesus. You can just simply ask these questions. Do I consistently think how Jesus thinks? 
Do I consistently act as Jesus would act? Do I want what God wants? Do I feel what God feels? And do I love like he loves? Discipleship is nothing less than this. And I hope you're hearing these words, whether you are here or at home online. To follow Jesus is to be all in all the time. All in all the time. These are not my words. These are the words of Christ. If you want to follow me, put your hand to the plow and don't look back. If you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross every single day and follow me. Jesus is the priority. He's who I'm living for. He's influencing everything about me. And so I just want to lead us in a time of prayer. As Pedro and the team come to lead us in a song. And I just want to give you a moment of space to pray and to say, God, would you help me see how I am building my life upon you? And where are the gaps? Where are the areas that I need to bring in line with your intention and your plan for my life? Just ask God to speak to you now in whatever ways that you need to be all in all the time to build your life on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ to experience the firm foundation, which the next verse said, this is God's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. That's the beautiful thing. Listen, church, when you make Jesus your cornerstone, there is nothing but marvel ahead because it is the most wonderful thing, the most amazing thing that we could ever do. So if there's something you need to confess to God, to say, just God, I'm sorry. Help me to, to keep you as the priority. Confess it to God right now. Father, we collectively confess that often our lives are leaning. And they're leaning at times to the point where it feels like pending destruction. But God, for everyone who has made Jesus the cornerstone of their lives, God, we, we thank you that our lives will never ultimately fall. They will never ultimately crumble because we have such a firm foundation. And so God, I ask that right now, Lord, right now, for anyone who has yet to make Jesus the firm foundation of their life, to build everything in their life upon the cornerstone of Jesus, God, I pray that they would just simply say one word to you right now, and that is yes.
God, help them to say yes to you. And in that yes to you, they're saying no to all the other foundations that they've sought to build their life upon that we once did as well. Whether it's money or work or relationships or pleasure, God, whatever it is, we've now discovered that those are shaky foundations that will never be firm. Oh God, make us a church that builds our lives upon you. You alone are worthy. You alone are marvelous. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.